0: Party people, this is John LaRance. It's the 6th of December, 2023, and this is episode 98, a deep dive on Ketorolac with Elizabeth Stewart. Elizabeth Stewart focused her Master of Science in Nurse Anesthesia project on the pharmacology of Toradol, generic name Ketorolac, and she's here today to tell us all about it. Elizabeth hails from Wisconsin, holds a BS in mathematics with a pre-med concentration, and engaged in HeLa cell cancer research prior to going to nursing school. She received a master of science in nursing degree from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee where she worked in a transplant ICU as a registered nurse while completing her clinical nurse leader degree and certification. Elizabeth followed that with her second master's degree, a master of science in nursing anesthesia from the University of New England and received the UNE Outstanding Student Award for her class. Her primary clinical training site was Maine Medical Center in Portland, Maine. When Elizabeth showed up for day one of clinical, I was serving as the SRNA clinical coordinator. And by the time she was completing her training, I was a year into my new role as chief CRNA at Maine Med. Elizabeth was one of the best SRNAs that we've had roll through Maine Med in years and brought a degree of professionalism and conscientiousness and excellence in clinical care that inspired confidence in her practice and really made me try to recruit her as clinical staff. (laughs) As it is, she's chosen to start her career closer to family in Massachusetts, and I wish her the best moving forward. Uh, I think that you're going to really enjoy hearing from Elizabeth as she walks us through the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics of Catorlac, with a special focus on the risk, or maybe lack thereof, of bleeding. With the use of ketorolac, which is one of the hot topics, or you know, one of the one of the touch points on ketorolac is the perceived risk of bleeding. She focused specifically on the risk of bleeding in adult breast surgery patients, and by doing so, she narrowed down a search of 200 and some odd journal articles to 27 research articles that were relevant and is going to walk us through what the literature says on the role of catorlac in perioperative bleeding risk in breast surgery patients. Her references are attached in the show notes to this episode. And with that, let's get to the show. Well, Elizabeth. Hi. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I'm really excited to talk with you today.
1: I'm really excited. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. So today we're going to talk about Toradol or Ketorolac. And you recently gave a uh, senior research project presentation at the University of New England that I attended in person, and I thought it went really well. And after hearing your deep dive into Toradol and your delivery on that, I wanted to chat with you about this topic that is often confounding to anesthesia providers, anesthesia trainees alike. So uh, what what got you interested in this topic?
1: Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. Um, the research stemmed from conversations that I had during my clinical experiences. Uh, they were often whispered behind the drapes so that the surgeon couldn't hear, uh, talking about the safety of Catorlac. Ketorolac um, is one of the only top drawer anesthetics that I've seen that are given with a Profound discussion with the surgeon before giving it. Um, And I don't think I've ever given a dose of Ketorilac without first discussing it with the surgeon. Um, For those of you who have been in clinical for a little bit, I think anybody who's had one of those conversations knows that the reason for surgeon hesitation is the concern for postoperative bleeding. CRNAs, though typically are a little frustrated about the conversation because their perceived risk for patient bleeding is much less severe than that of the surgeons. Mm -hmm. So the dissonance between the CRNAs and the surgeons begs the question, is the risk for postoperative bleeding with intraoperative catorlac a major or a minor risk?
0: And you're going to let us know today. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Here we go. So before we get into that, before we get into what the, the literature says on its impact on bleeding... Uh, let's cover Toradol's Pharmacology. So what is it? Why do we use it? How does it work?
1: Absolutely. So it's very important to know, first of all, that Cotorlac has a street name known as spicy ibuprofen.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, Ketorolac is a competitive, non-selective cyclooxygenase inhibitor. By reversibly inhibiting COX-1 and 2, it decreases prostaglandin synthesis, thereby providing antipyretic, anti-inflammatory, and analgesic effects. So catorilac blocks the production of arachidonic metabolites such as thromboxane A two, which is essential for platelet aggregation. So it is important to know that catorilac does transiently inhibit platelet aggregation, which can temporarily increase bleeding time, but it does not affect the primary coagulation of fibrinolytic pathways. And we are going to come back to that a little bit later. Uh, the onset of catorilac is about thirty minutes, with a duration of four to six hours. It undergoes hepatic metabolism and excretion in the urine. In the U.S., the Ketorolac is approved by the FDA for moderate to severe acute pain management for up to five days. Surprisingly, Ketorolac is not officially approved for pediatric or labor and delivery patients, though in the anesthesia world, Ketorolac is frequently used in practice for both of those populations. Ketorolac is contraindicated for patients with peptic ulcer disease, history of GI bleed, risk of renal failure, or advanced renal impairment. The U.S. box warning states that Ketorolac is also contraindicated in patients at high risk for bleeding in general. All of this information can be found on Lexicomp as well. Um, And interestingly, Lexicomp also says that in pre-marketing patient trials, only 1 to 10% of patients experience GI hemorrhage and prolonged bleeding time. It's also really good to know that Catorlac is an inexpensive drug. A vial of 15 milligrams per milliliter costs less than $5, and a vial of 30 per milliliter costs less than 8
0: Interesting. So we want to get to bleeding risk. We've talked a little bit about the pharmacology. Uh, where do you see Catorlac coming in, in in terms of utility in anesthesia practice? So why, where's the benefit? Where, where, do we, where do we usually see this being given and why?
1: Absolutely. Um, a lot of it stems from the profound national opioid crisis that necessitated providers to find alternative analgesics to opioids, and ketorolac is one of those. Um, the advent of enhanced recovery after surgery protocols have further expanded ketorolac use. And also in our day and age when healthcare cost is an ever-pervasive conversation, it's really important to consider that ketorolac is an inexpensive medication. Um, What's more, it's an NSAID, and Ketorolac has the added benefit of avoiding all of those opiate side effects, including constipation, respiratory depression, nausea, vomiting, oversedation, and addiction potential. Um, and in my specific population of study, breast surgery patients, the avoidance of postoperative nausea and vomiting is especially important because they're already at increased risk. And finally, Ketorolac is a really effective analgesic, so it has a lot of different uses with a lot of benefits.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, finding a way, I'm glad we're doing this podcast because I feel like finding a safe way to give ketorolac is really important because of its utility as a analgesic that's not an opioid. So obviously from an opioid sparing or an opioid free technique, being able to get some sort of inset on board as a foundation. I can remember uh, the very first first times I really started to look at uh, ERAS programs, Enhanced Recovery After Surgery, this one chart totally changed my perspective on how I thought about opioids. And it was this idea of the perioperative timeframe in terms of, you know, uh, like pre-admission to the hospital for surgery, then pre-op, then intra-op, then post-op, then the post-op recovery phase and it looked at what we could do as anesthesia providers in each of those phases in terms of analgesia in preventing pain. Mm-hmm. And opioids were only on the chart in the post-operative phase. And this was from the American Society of Enhanced Recovery, I think, which, which kind of scrambled my brain a little bit because when I came through anesthesia training, like, Opioids were the foundation of your intraoperative analgesia plan. That's like what you gave, right. right? But the way that they got away from that was by layering in all of the other things that we can give. So Tylenol, NSAIDs, whether that's Celebrexin pre-op or Tordol intra-op, uh, you know, all of the peripheral uh, nerve blocks, neuraxial anesthesia, epidurals. Um,
1: Gabapentin, Magnesium.
0: All the list goes on and on. Lidocaine, Esmalol, dexmedetomidine, right. Decadron, like all of these things. When you layer on a multimodal approach, and, and especially if you're doing neuraxial or, or peripheral nerve blocks, you can literally get through major surgery. We have a cardiac surgeon uh, here at Maine Medical Center that does all of his open heart cases completely opioid free. So it's not that you have to, you know, opioids have their place, they can be effective interop. Uh, but there's also a lot of issues around giving them intrap. They prime people for needing more opioids in the post-op phase. So, I think uh, you know this isn't a, a podcast on opioid-free or opioid-sparing anesthesia, but Tordal has a really important role in that paradigm. So, I'm glad that we're talking about it because this is one of the biggest reasons why people don't give Tordal is the concern, maybe misunderstanding around bleeding risk. So, I'm really glad that we're talking about it. Uh, if folks want to hear more about opioid free anesthesia, we, we have podcasts on that on the show. Um, so you can go back and look at some of those. Um, but to get on with it, let's talk about what kind of articles did you hone your search down to when you did this as your graduate project?
1: Yeah, so when I was initially looking at the literature, I found that Katorlak research has been conducted on two specific populations, um, pediatric oral surgery patients and adult breast surgery patients. I really wanted to stay in the realm of adults, so I delved into adult breast surgery research. So formally, my research question asked, is Katorlak associated with clinically significant bleeding in adult breast surgery patients? The final compilation of my research was 27 manuscripts. Um, which yielded content in three different categories, Well, I categorized them into pro-Katorilac, anti-Katorilac, and inconclusive Katorilac literature.
0: Interesting. So you got down to 27 manuscripts that looked at this, and your initial search, if I remember right, like drug up like hundreds of articles on...
1: I think it's been ingrained in my brain. 233 was the number of initial articles. 233 articles. Yeah, that I had to sift through.
0: And then you screened down and think, you know, things are like peer reviewed literature, relevancy to anesthesia, English language, like all of that. Yeah, humans, (laughs) right? So 27 highly relevant uh, peer reviewed articles uh, that you ended up looking at. So, what did they say about Tordahl's role in perioperative bleeding risk?
1: Uh, trust me, you don't want me to touch on each article, so if there Correct. are people <laughs> who want uh, a full synthesis table, we can make that happen. Um, it's really important to say that overall, none of the 14 pro-Catorilac articles found statistically significant results to associate Catorlac with bleeding or hematoma formation. And I think that statement is really profound. Um Interestingly, the analysis by an author called Gobble et al. Uh, spanned 27 articles, and it actually showed lower incidence of adverse effects with low-dose Cotorillac, uh, less than 30 milligrams, which was statistically significant with a P of 0.02. Um, however, none of these pro articles included power calculations, which if you're in statistics, those are very important for determining significance of results. Um, Within the anti-Ketorolac articles, six of them, all six of them, were retrospective studies, none of which were systematic reviews or meta-analyses, which, um, for those of you new to research, are the highest level of evidence. Um, Several studies also established association between Ketorolac and bleeding, but none were able to establish causation. And again, no power calculations were reported. Um, there were only two studies with inconclusive Katorlak literature. Um, both were Cochrane systematic reviews, but both reported insufficient evidence to determine whether IV Katorlak influences the rate of surgical. Search- surgical site bleeding. And I think you and I, John, talked about Cochrane reviews at the the research symposium. They're just difficult because they're massive compilations of data. They're very specific. And so if you do a search of, I don't know, 15 random ones, most of them are inconclusive.
0: I, I think that is important to highlight. You know, a, a Cochrane meta-analysis is often considered like the pinnacle of research analysis. So right. They're very, like when Cochrane says something, it's generally regarded as being very substantial. Mm-hmm. They often don't say something definitively because that's how research goes. Like right. when you cast a really broad net, it's really difficult to compare studies, you know, in terms of methodology, scope, outcomes, statistical analysis. And to say all of these studies that were all conducted differently mm-hmm. and say slightly different things, they all amount to this statement that we can make definitively. So it it's like it's not like pulling 15 of your friends because it's research, but it's like if you pulled 15 of your friends, it might be hard to come up with like a conclusive answer to what everyone wants to do or whatever. So that's true. It's not uncommon to see Cochrane meta-analysis say, uh, you know, a lot about the literature, but in their conclusions go, we don't have enough evidence or we don't have uh, enough high quality evidence to say definitively that this is a thing or this is not a thing.
1: Right. So unfortunately, the results are messy. <laughs> um, along those lines, though, of definitively saying something, in order to do that with Cotorilac, we would need a randomized control trial. And um, But that's probably not going to happen for several reasons. Um, First, a study that potentially could cause patient harm, such as bleeding, is unethical. So you'd have a hard time getting um, IRB approval. Second, the baseline perioperative hematoma rate in breast surgeries is very low at 2.4%. So a very large sample size would be needed to ensure adequate power when analyzing the data, which would require very significant resources. Uh, finally, Catorlac is already on the market in generic form and is very inexpensive. So no drug company has the financial incentive to perform such an elaborate and vast RCT. Um, so the things that we can say about Catorlac, uh, Cotorlac does empirically prolong bleeding time, which means in the lab, if we were to measure it, it does prolong bleeding time. Hematoma in breast surgery patients is a really rare complication and is likely also underreported. We can also say that the historical references that I explored that tie catorlac to bleeding have largely been taken out of context. We can say that none of the 14 pro manuscripts found significant data to associate catorlac with bleeding or hematoma formation. And we can say that all six of the anti-catorlac studies found correlation Few were clinically relevant, and none established causation. Additionally, much of the anti-catorolac data was confounded by comorbidities, case complexity, and specific populations. And to go back to what you were saying about comparing data, uh, directly comparing catorolac data is really difficult because of the different outcome measures, the different catorolac doses, the variable timing of dosing, and the differences in patient population between all of these studies. So overall, it's it's messy. It's really messy.
0: It is messy. So I got a couple questions for you. Yeah. Um, you said that uh, the historical re- references tying Katorlac to bleeding were taken out of context. Can you speak a little bit more about that?
1: Sure. Uh, some of the articles that tout Katorlac as a high risk of bleeding reference these historical articles whose names I can't remember off the top of my mm-hmm. head. But I can tell you one of them was actually a correspondence from um, a hospital to the manufacturer of Catorlac saying, um, we have just started using your product after it's been out on the market. We gave it to this many patients and we experienced this many GI bleeds what's going on. Um, but they didn't do any kind of analysis. They didn't give any power calculations. It was literally a letter. And so people were using this letter that had no backing or follow-up to say that Catorlac caused bleeding. Interesting. Um, There was also one that was a very specific case report, which case reports can be very helpful as an example or as a study of things, everything that can go wrong. Um, But this person was um, a liver failure patient who was receiving two different types of anticoagulants and then was given a dose of catorilac, and it was just the perfect recipe for a GI bleed. (laughs) So they were apparently astounded that that happened. So.
0: Blaming the couture lack.
1: Yeah, yeah, that was the culprit.
0: Yeah, interesting. So, uh, right. So, the quality of evidence is obviously very important when you're right. evaluating that. So, uh, so w- which which brings me to this meme that you had in your presentation. You had a you had a meme, <laughs> a, a photograph in your presentation. In the scene on the photograph said. Uh, that jumping to conclusions is the most exercise some people ever get.
1: <laughs> I love I, that one.
0: I thought was amazing. Uh, not to be too terse, but um, so so given what the literature shows that you've got like a little bit of a muddy picture. There's not you know definitive randomized control trial evidence saying that Katorlac is safe in breast surgery patients, but there's also pretty good evidence showing that the risk of substantial bleeding is relatively low, Mm -hmm. what are your recommendations for anesthesia providers on how to move forward and when they're making decisions around whether or not or how to incorporate uh, Catorlac into their practice?
1: Yeah. First of all, memes are one of my favorite presentation tools. Uh, they add humor, they help audience stay focused and they act as a memory tool as you obviously remembered one of mine.
0: I mean, we're talking about it right Ta-da. now. <laughs>
1: um, so yeah, the, the results are inconclusive. So there's no silver bullet to say one way or another, whether catorlac causes bleeding. Um, my hope though, is that this information in this podcast can open the door for students and CRNAs to have informed discussions with the surgeons about the best analgesic for their patients. Um, Um, We can definitively say that Ketorolac is a fantastic alternative to opioids. Um, You guys can say that the majority of recent research demonstrates a lack of evidence suggesting Ketorolac increases clinically relevant bleeding uh we can also say that no study has established causation between ketorolac administration and clinically significant bleeding and also as with all of our medications ketorolac has to be considered really carefully within each patient context and so it's not a medication to be thoughtlessly given to everyone so overall have a conversation with your surgeon be informed and be careful who you give it to
0: yeah and then obviously you know you know remember the contraindications Folks with peptic ulcer disease, history of GI bleed, renal failure, advanced renal impairment. So right. those, I mean, that's a U.S. box warning uh, for contraindications. And then the warning for high-risk bleeding patients. So like your liver failure patient who's on two <laughs> anticoagulants already.
1: Not the best choice.
0: Probably skip the Uh, But you make a really good point uh, that um, clinically, clinically relevant bleeding, clinically significant bleeding is different than an empirically prolonged bleeding time. So again, empirically prolonged bleeding time. I think if I remember, you know, to reading some of the literature around the pharmacology, prolonged bleeding time was a matter of minutes, like less than 10 minutes prolongation of how long it took for a clot to form, like a clot formed. It's not like you just just bled. So then that raises the uh, question, like, is this theoretical, uh, increase in bleeding time going to result in clinically significant bleeding? Is my patient going to get a neck hematoma in a neck surgery? Is my patient going to get a breast hematoma in a breast surgery? Uh, and that we again, we don't have great evidence to say definitively it won't, uh, but we have a fair bit of evidence to say it's it's relatively unlikely that you're going right. to see clinically significant bleeding with Low dose Catorlac, which is another point you made to say, uh, I think one of your studies talked about doses of
1: Catorlac
0: less than 30. So let's let's talk about that for just briefly before we wrap this up. A lot of anesthesia providers for adults will give 30 milligrams of Catorlac. I have seen, you know, in anecdotal situations, which is just my own clinical practice, some surgeons requesting 15 milligrams of Catorlac and saying, analgesia outcomes are are equivalent to 30 milligram uh, doses did you come across any of that information in the literature
1: so y- yes and no um, dosing was not a part of my primary research question so I had to steer away from that as much mm-hmm. as possible for the sake of the paper however at the presentation one of the providers who was there mentioned that there's actually an article and I did find it I um, Put out by some uh, emergency medicine, highly respected emergency medicine organization that showed that there was equivalent um, analgesic response between 30 milligrams, 15 milligrams, and 10 milligrams of ketorolac given in emergency departments. So it wasn't specifically in anesthesia, and I think it was a wide variety of complaints, but it's really interesting to me that those three doses were equivalent pain reduction effects, um, in these patients. So the short answer is there's more research to be done.
0: More research to be done, but you know, if you give a reduced dose, uh, you may still get some analgesic effects out of it, and maybe maybe you have a reduced incidence or reduced right. likelihood or risk of uh, bleeding with a reduced dose. So ten, It might be a
1: bargaining chip with the surgeons, too. It could too. be a
0: bargaining chip. 10, 15, or 30 milligrams are showing equivalency in analgesia, and we'll put links to all of... Uh, um, Elizabeth's research, including that article into the show notes of the podcast. So, uh, well, as we wrap up, is there anything else that you would like to say about Katorlac in the world of anesthesia? Um,
1: one thing that you had asked during my presentation that really got me thinking is just very interesting. Uh, since catorlac inhibits platelet aggregation, but does not inhibit Or affect the primary coagulation of fibrinolytic pathways. Excuse me. um, There's a possibility that administering catorilac after primary hemostasis is achieved, so after skin closure, could decrease the amount of postoperative bleeding uh, instances or occurrence of hematoma. So again, this is just kind of a a theory or an idea, but I it got me thinking that that would be a really interesting. research topic to really dive into when Catorilac is given and how much bleeding is seen based on that timing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What's timing look like? I mean, if you can get a clot formed, then maybe, maybe there's some benefit. And I've seen surgeons do that to where they're like, well, they're a little oozy right now. Let's hold off. I'll check in on them and pack you and maybe we'll give a dose and pack you. Right. You know, right. Let the clot get formed up and see how the patient goes. And then maybe think about um, adding in catorlac. Uh Well, Elizabeth, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for that rundown. I hope that's helpful for folks. Uh, It's always challenging, like many things in anesthesia, when we don't have crystal clear answers based on incredibly sound evidence. But uh, hopefully that um, gives people some room to talk about Cotorlac in their clinical practices. And before we go, Uh, just to touch back on what we opened up with, you are almost done with your anesthesia training. Uh, you're gearing up to test for boards to become a CRNA looking back on your experience on your path. I was wondering if there was any advice that you would give to other anesthesia trainees.
1: Mm, Yeah, it's a, it's a good question and I really enjoy mentoring. So, um, I'll, I'll try to keep it short, but, um, the first thing I would say is make sure that you keep asking questions, um, Always be inquisitive, and the phrase that I found really, really helpful was, "Can you help me understand dot dot dot?" Um, it's a very valuable. You, you have to
0: say dot 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 though. Like, yes, like uh, yes,
1: quite, quite.
0: Can, <laughs> can you help me understand <laughs> dot dot dot? Maybe just say it to yourself. You're gonna you're gonna go to clinical, and you're gonna think about that. Can you help me understand that? And then just to yourself
1: there you go (laughs) as you wait for the response (laughs) or as everybody in the room looks at you like what's going on. Right. Um, but that was a really valuable way for me to approach new CRNAs, new surgeons, new nurses, uh, whomever in a constantly changing environment. So that was, that was really powerful. Um, The second thing I would say to students is that the anesthesia world is as small as people say. And I'm only truly beginning to learn how small. So I found that who you are in school is profoundly carried forward in your professional network. And so I would highly encourage people to take clinical very seriously. Because this is your foundation for who you're going to be when you graduate. Um, And finally, the path to CRNA school is really hard hard especially while juggling everything else in your life none of us quit being a human or quit having families during school as much as we tell people that this is going to be a hard period and we're going to have to isolate in some ways Um, so it's really important to have people to support you my people were those who were back home my classmates and the new community that I developed along the way and getting to this finish line was not something I did to myself so thank you to everyone who supported me to get to this point including you and your mentorship John.
0: Oh, thank you so much. Uh, Elizabeth, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to work with you over the last couple of years. I can remember when we were sitting on the very first day of (laughs) clinical with a couple of your other classmates, I was still working as the clinical coordinator Mm -hmm. uh, at Maine Med and we were just doing like the rundown and you were like furiously taking notes. (laughs) Your other classmates were furiously taking notes and now seeing all of you cruising to the OR like a boss Still with a healthy fear and trepidation of what's going on, (laughs) but, uh, so much more, uh, competence, clinical confidence, uh, a belief, maybe a little weary behind the eyes, but a belief that this is, it's happening, that you can do this, that you're almost done. Mm -hmm. And I'm incredibly proud of you and I wish you the best moving forward.
1: Thank you so much. Well, like I said, your mentorship has been invaluable. I still remember sitting on that couch too.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's the beginning and now you're almost at the end. So nice job. It's the
1: beginning of the end.
0: The beginning of the end. And now, I mean, I always say boards is not the finish line, right? Like boards is, is, a, is a, it will feel like a finish line. It's, it's worth celebrating, but it is, a, it is a new starting line on your career, which you very eloquently spoke to just a moment ago that the way you are in school sets the stage for your impending career. And uh, you've done a great job at that, but that is advice that would be well-heeded uh, by other folks it it really does the anesthesia community is super small i've seen that more now as a chief crna people know each other people have worked with somebody else that knows somebody else so you know just treating every day like you want to represent yourself and is an opportunity that you want to be known by uh can be really helpful so nice advice thanks cool all right
1: thanks again for having me
0: What up, y'all? I wanted to drop a reminder that if you're a CRNA looking for a great team to invest yourself in your career in, check us out at Maine Medical Center in Portland, Maine. While the clinical opportunities would challenge you and the location is one of the best, our people and sense of community are truly what set us apart. Reach out if you want to learn more.